Are we recording? Yeah. Fuck. Sorry. <laughs> God damn it. Sorry, sorry. As apocalypses go, that's pretty good. Sha la la, wouldn't you say? We fell in love in a hopeless place. We fell in love in a hopeless place. We fell in love in a hopeless place. Back to Postscript, a podcast about soccer analysis blogs. I'm John Muller, and this is Kyoto Football. Hello, John. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, man. Uh, so we've we've slowed down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> just life happens, I guess. But yeah. today we're we're going to wrap up uh, sort of like a, a four episode mini series on on the ancients of of, yeah. of of data analysis, I guess. And and we've been kind of talking about like this one small cluster of people who started blogs together, started talking to each other. And the, like the first two people that we talked about in episode one were Chris yeah. Anderson, who ran this blog called soccer by numbers and Sarah Rudd, who started as a commenter on soccer by numbers before launching her own blog called on football. Uh, and today I think we're going to kind of see where that conversation led as this click of bloggers sort of became professionalized became like sucked into a club but before all that yeah. they did some really really cool public analytics work in the section of analytics work that i find most interesting the the solving soccer stuff right yeah that's right yeah and so we you know we've we've done some journeying the last three episodes chris and and sarah and then howard in episode two and then the reason we focused in on you know danny finkelstein and ian graham in episode three was while they're important to soccer analytics, they're important to Ingram was a blogger, right? And and yeah. and Finkelstein was a sort of proto blogger, and we wanted to put that into relief. There was a question about what does it mean to be a blog um, versus something else, right? Mm -hmm. And then we we wrapped up the last episode with a, a blog post by Sarah as she was coming out of that. What's central to our story so far? This March 2011 Sloan uh, Sports Analytics Conference. And she wrapped Which was up. important, we said in the first episode, because it like brought these people together, right? They were, yeah. they were meeting each other, they were swapping ideas. Um, but but I think that 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 Sarah post that we mentioned at the end of the last episode was important for another reason, because she was about to get her hands on some event data, which I think our our bloggers at least have not had. Ian Graham had had it, uh, yeah, and and he did that really cool model that we talked about last time, the Castrol Index, uh, which was kind of a, a an early possession value model. Um, yeah. So Sarah's going to enter enter this contest, and the contest is going to get her data, right? That's that's where we left off. That's right, and we and we alluded to that episode one as well. But it's important that she says at the end of her post, she says details about this contest, you know, it, which we all care about because we all want access to better data. Um, details about this contest can be found at the Stat DNA blog, and so. You know, we know about the story of Sarah joining StatDNA, of StatDNA being eaten by Arsenal as a spoiler. Like we, we've already mentioned a couple of times, mm -hmm. but that's where that's where this, this episode ends. But the reason that this is an episode uh, on PostScript and not in something else is because they blogged, StatDNA blogged. And it's funny, they're 
almost their first blog is this post that says we're having a research contest. Enter it and you can get this, your hands on this juicy event data. And we want to see what you guys can do with it. And so that, that that's really important to today's episode. And I mean, I'm really excited about this one because this blog at StatDNA, I mean, they're, they're a, we should talk about StatDNA for a second, right? They're a, a, a data company. They're collecting their own data. They started, I think, in 2009 or something. And they're collecting detailed event data, XY coordinates, timestamped, um, with some other cool stuff around it, like defender pressure and some kind of defender positioning, some amount of body pose, detailed stuff that I don't think Opta at the time had, uh, and that we won't have in public for a while. Like it's it's really it's a really cool specific data set that this company StatDNA is working on. They're pulling yeah, it if... primarily out of out of Brazil's. Syria division. Right. Also- so 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 if people are listening to this and they don't know what event data looks like, they probably at least know more or less what it can do and what it can't do. Uh, but those limitations are in some sense artificial. They're they're imposed by the data provider. Um, and so like our standard idea of what data can and can't do comes from Opta, who's been doing this at a huge scale for a very long time. Uh, but StatDNA started like not very long after Opta was collecting their event data. And StatDNA kind of looked at this and said, hey, there's some other stuff that we can collect, like what kind of state is is the defense in, uh, which you know has not ever been a part of most of the public event data that we've had. So I think that's really cool. I, th- I think it's cool that basically anytime a, a new data provider comes along, they can look at what's out there and they can say, hey, how can we improve on this offering? I don't know like the origin story of, of StatDNA, do you? Like where, uh, where did they come from? Where did they suddenly spring up and start collecting Brazilian event data? Not exactly. You know, this is, I think this is better. I can't remember at all. I think it's better summarized in these books that are out mm-hmm. and, and Roy Smith's book probably, but you know, it's a, it's a startup data company, Jason Rosenfeld, uh, and I, it founds it with others. And Jason Rosenfeld was a, he was a former McKinsey consultant, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I don't. And, I don't know why he left McKinsey and decided to get into soccer data collection, though. Yeah, and but, and I think the origin story of the company, uh, you know, it's less interesting to me, ex- except that it is cool because, like, in episode three, we're talking about decision technology. They're not generating their own data, but they're a data insights company. They're yeah. they're they've got contracts with the Times of London and with Castrol, and they're doing they're doing work. They're using Opta data, and they're a data analytics company, mm-hmm. not primarily a blog, but they enter the blogosphere, we yeah. think probably because they see it start to grow, right? And I, and I think, you know, StatDNA's origin, not as a blog, but as a data company that enters the blogging arena in this episode is also important along similar lines. Like there's this conversation happening that we've sort of outlined in the last few episodes. And I think they're sitting, they've been collecting data at this top point, you know, for a year, Two, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. not a, not a ton of data but they're they're working on it and they've got they've got grand visions and grand plans and they they look at this and they go i think the way we need to start getting our name out there is blogging and i think that's cool yeah i mean the the difference between a consultancy like decision technology that just analyzes data and a company like stat dna that collects their own data is is huge in terms of the investment that they put in like it it's really painstaking to collect event yeah. data and they probably spent a lot of money on this I don't know why they were collecting primarily Brazilian Syria. Like, I guess it was just more expensive to scout there. So maybe that was where it, it made sense to do data scouting. I'm not sure. Yeah, but, it's a cool wrinkle to this, right? 
that yeah. is, is Brazilian, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think they were also collecting some Premier League stuff. I'm not sure. Yeah. But but the point is, like, they had spent a whole lot of money collecting this data. And yeah. then, like, you know, what what do you do with that? You have to, because, like, yeah. clubs were not very interested in buying event data at this stage, I don't think. So you had to somehow get this yeah. out there, show people what could be done with it. And, yeah, the best way to put your product out there and, and let everybody know was was to start a blog. And that's what they did. Yeah. And, and I mean, our politics are we think that's awesome because we think blogging is this most important, you know, way that analytics community disseminates the information and, and collaborates and all these things. But I have to say, too, like one reason I love the content of this episode is like they blog like they burn really bright and then they're gone. They blogged from like March of 2011, you know, kick, kicking off again a after the sort of Chris Sarah intervention in episode one. And, and I don't know, coincidentally or perhaps not coincidentally, right around the Sloan conference. Mm -hmm. And then they they run for like officially for a year but they're kind of like wrapped up by like september maybe of, of of 2011 so it's like six months where they frankly just they knock out like all these bangers it's like it's like um Greatest hits. You know, well you know how like a, a band sometimes will their first album will be like four albums worth of hits because uh -huh. they've been they've been working on it for so long but they just never had an album it's i wonder if that's happening here although the data they're using for all these posts is just like the most recent season and a half or so of brazilian data so it's it could also just be that they see the blogging happening and say we want to jump in there and then they just start immediately solving soccer with some of the greatest historical artifact posts of, of all time we'll i like i like that you analogize it to music because to me reading these posts felt like hearing old versions of the standards like in some ways analytics just kind of repeats the same like we study the same subjects over and over and like kind of yeah. arrive at pretty much the same insights over and over like uh, i've i've written posts that were like shittier versions of the posts that they did in 2011 <laughs> and most analytics bloggers have still good something that we do over and over um yeah i don't know I well, like what it also it has that quality where you read it and it sounds it's there's some records that you hear and you it sounds like like it was recorded like in the fucking 60s but it sounds like it's from 85 it's yeah. like craft work doing techno music you know or something uh -huh. and i might i might have the dates wrong on craft work but there's there's some music you hear and you go i cannot believe they recorded that then and there's an element to that here too because again this is 2011 this is before xg becomes mainstream and and obviously before the the explosion of possession value models in the last several years but i i think it's worth just walking through some of these blogs because i mean the the conversation between chris and sarah in the early you know, episode one here it was around offensive production really it was how do we how do we know what it, when a team is good right mm -hmm. chris seemed to gravitate towards well it's it's their conversion percentage of their shots sarah said i don't know i think you got to plot this on two dimensions and and see the the sort of the xy scatter plot of both conversion percentages and shots and stat dna starts their their blog post with a with a a post that I'm not going to read the whole thing of, but it, it just says <laughs> the title is the key to goal scoring, taking <laughs> shots inside the box. Right. And Pretty good insight to start with, I guess. It is a great, is a great insight to start with. And it seems like so obvious now, but obviously we know that this wasn't obvious as bloggers are working through this. What, what Chris and Sarah ultimately found, we can maybe it was the benefit of hindsight. I don't know if you want to do this or not, but it, but it basically it's like, 
over long sample sizes, your conversion percentage, the higher that is, it's likely that it's because you're finding better shots, mm -hmm. closer shots to the goal. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's sort of like in one fell swoop what they do here with this first post. You know, they, yeah, I, I guess in the, and, like, and what's, the original conversation between Chris and Sarah, like it was it was a little bit ambiguous whether what was helping good teams to score more goals was that they had, you know, good players who were good at shooting or that they were like right. creating better chances or that they were just better at creating a lot of chances in the first place. Like all, all these factors were kind of being weighed against one another. And this post comes in and says, like, yeah. yes, everything farther back in the chain matters, like how you create shots matters. But let's just talk about something really simple, which is that yeah, shots outside the box are not as valuable as shots inside the box. Which is a very good way to do blogging, right? A simple idea. And and I think if you'll remember in episode one, Chris is it's like he's struck by, I think it was Leverkusen who had all these shots but didn't win the league, right? And he was like, hmm, something's up there. And interestingly, Jason Rosenfeld starts the same way. He but he's talking about Brazilian teams because that's where his data is. Mm -hmm. And and he's got this team he's watching, uh Vasco that 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 has all these shots and and even um the, there's a player on their team that has this quote. He's like, we're leading the league in shots, but the goals are just not going in. Sooner or later, our luck is going to change. And he says, unfortunately for Vasco, their their luck, in quotes, didn't change. And they finished tied for second in Serie A in shots, but tied for 13th in goals scored. The casual fan watching might have spotted why. They were bombing a high percentage of their shots from long distance. Mm -hmm. So to say it another way, their their shot quality was not good. And, and he, he ends up with this data, you know, soundbite that says shots inside the box are 4.4 times more likely to score than shots from outside the box. Good That's a finding it. that is not jaw jaw dropping, but it's it points us in the direction of just like how quickly event data can cut through the sort of analysis that's based on aggregates, right? Mm -hmm. Once you got to where the shots are being taken, you just immediately see. And in stat DNA, they're not just focused on shots here, but they do start and just knock out like the most. I mean, one way to sum up like mainstream soccer analytics is just to say shots inside the box are better. And they just sort of like get that. They just get that out of the way right out at the beginning. They're like, "That's done. Okay, shots inside the box are better." And they're going to move way, on. By the way, before to... before we leave shots outside the box, uh, Bob, yeah, I want to I want to take a quick detour because I've been playing with old World Cup data for the last week for an athletic article that'll be out pretty soon. Oh my god! Uh, and and like one of the stories that we tell about data analytics and why it matters is this story about like. Okay, we collected data, we invented expected goals, we saw that it was better to shoot close to goal. Gradually, like that lesson kind of got absorbed by the soccer community and players like, you know, changed their shot selection, maybe teams changed the way they created shots. And thanks to data analytics, we now shoot closer to goal. So we tell this story that, that this is kind of the highest profile way that soccer data has changed the game. This is our mid-range jump shot. This is our fourth down conversion. But if you look at historical data, in 1966, I think 62% uh, of all shots were outside the box. By 2006, well well before expected goals, that was down to like 54%. Now I think it's in the mid 40s uh, So like things have changed for sure in the last decade, but they were changing before. Yeah. And, you know, like you, you don't need data to see that it's better to shoot inside the box. And I think that that yeah. change was going on well before that. Anyway. This is all to say that like it's all well and good to say we've created this proto expected goals model, which they had, which was cool. Uh, and it's better to shoot inside the box, which is a good insight. But it's also good that they didn't stop there and they did a lot of other really interesting stuff. Yeah. So so the way I would categorize like this run of March to September with their posts is they spend, I don't know, 
five or six posts basically building out um, a framework for goal scoring, which does which they do focus in on shooting and they basically build out what we would think of today as like a pretty solid shot-based expected goals model. They don't call it that. I think they accidentally call it that in one sentence just because of the nature of <laughs> what expected value and goals means, right? Yeah, they call um, their XG model expected value, which is close yeah. to what we call possession value today. And then somebody else called possession value expected goals uh, and, and oh yeah, Howard's yeah with Howard, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, it, so names were fluid back then. So they build that out, and then and they go and they talk about passing and processes to build sort of scoring chances via passing, and then they get into the sort of their research papers, and we'll we'll close with that. But there's a post at the end of March they write called a statistical framework for understanding goal creation, and to Ooh. me this is the skeleton of everything. But I think it's interesting that before they get there. Like two days after the shoot inside the box post, there's a post by Ben Alomar, who's also writing for them. I looked him up on LinkedIn and he ended up working for a couple NBA teams. And then I think headed up the ESPN analytics group as okay. well. Okay. Um, but he's, he's, you know, young blogger here. And, and his post is called how defensive pressure impacts goal scoring. And I, I want to be like, Let's talk about the expected goal model first. Is this one of the attributes in your expected goal model, like the defensive pressure? Because that's something like StatsBomb adds in a decade later after this or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, 2017, I think, is when StatsBomb introduces defensive pressure as like this innovation, but they're doing it in 2011. Yeah, and what I'm so fascinated by is, so Alomar here starts his post off not talking about, I wonder if our value of a shot should be impacted by defensive pressure, although he gets there. He starts by saying, evaluating defense is the holy grail of sports statistics. Defense is difficult to evaluate for two central reasons. One, to a large degree, because there are precious few defensive statistics available. And two, defense is very much a team effort, so it's hard to separate one player's contribution from the other to the team. Mm -hmm. So he goes on, and, and they basically do a study of different kinds of pressure on the shot uh, data that they're recording. They've got like three levels of pressure, which they call closing, challenge, and marked. I think those are in order of escalation as well. But he, so he says, um, it's it's probably relevant there. By the way, I'm cutting you off, but like, yeah, go ahead. When he says that this is a pro defense is a challenge in sports statistics generally, it's probably relevant that he went on to work in basketball and work uh -huh. on other sports at ESPN because. He's not just saying this is a problem in soccer. This is a problem in sports because you're yeah. trying to measure non-events, right? Things that didn't happen. Uh, you know, baseball people know that just just measuring like who fielded a ball is is not really measuring defense. And I'm sure that basketball kind of has these same issues. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Like this strikes me as someone who watches basketball because he says you know, when the defender is challenging the shot, the defender is in close proximity and is aggressively moving towards the shooter in an attempt to take possession of the ball, the probability of a goal drops by 13%. When a shooter is marked, so the defender is close proximity between the shooter and the goal, the probability of the goal is scored drops by 7%. And when the defender is merely closing in on the shooter from a greater difference, the probability of a goal drops by 3%. These are, I, I look at these with a the history of learning about expected goals, thinking, oh, these are really nice inputs to put into the expected goal model right? Yeah. If you know what the pressure on the shot is, you, you know how to tweak the probability of that shot in a way that's helpful, meaningful for your data model. He's looking at it saying, 
I want to know who the good defenders are. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is so um, – I think it's interesting for a number of reasons. We're going we're gonna to put a pin in it because there's other moments here where these bloggers are thinking about other sports. Um, and I think that's a really interesting and important mode of like reproduction of ideas here. But he's he's going like, if I can find which players are pressuring shots and lowering their value, I could measure defensive contribution. And it, that strikes me as like the Shane Battier thing. Like yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the no stats all-stars. He's going like, it's hard to measure these stats, but if we could inversely measure how much a, sh- you know, a, a guard or a forward is missing his shot when Shane Batty is around or something like that, we could start to measure this, this other quality. Right. And the, and the way that he talks about, you know, shot pressure affecting shot quality, like that's a, that's a very important thing, I think in NBA analytics in a way that it's yeah. still not really in soccer analytics, but it does also strike me that, this idea that you know finding defenders who close down shots means finding good defenders might be more applicable in basketball than it is in soccer yeah like when i read this after a very long time reading all sorts of soccer analysis i'm i'm sitting here going i don't think that's right but i but it is right to do the inverse and to plug it into your expected goals model right which which they find yeah and we'll we'll get to that so now that that was March 4th, on March 28th, they roll out this post, which I think is sort of like the table of contents for all of this and the framework that's that I want to explore pretty deeply. It's called a statistical framework for understanding goal creation. March 28th, this is written by Jason Rosenfeld. So here's some excerpts. He says, let's first start out with the basic concept, which is shown in the diagram below. And unfortunately, the because we are lost yeah, in history, the diagram's not there, but it's kind of fun to to piece together what it is yeah yeah based on what he's writing here so you know the picture's lost but he says this is a pretty simplistic view of how things work so he's talking this sort of abstract and high level and in some ways that's comforting the logic is something like this to score a goal you almost always have to get the ball past the goalie so i'm thinking like put put past the goalie at the top of this diagram maybe i love that very meticulous almost always like yeah, <laughs> the goalkeeper could be in the net for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then he says to, to get the shot past the goalie, you have to take a shot. So maybe like lower that down to some diag. Maybe it's like a could be like a shitty PowerPoint with like arrows, like a process flow. Um, you have to take a shot, and it helps if it's not just any shot, but a good shot. And I think, well, we we can we can interrogate this. I think he's talking about good shot as in likely to score based on where it's taken from but he could also mean well struck right he could mean both i mean in the early shot quality posts he does talk about both factors but but he's also correctly identified that shot location matters a lot more than uh you know how hard you can so then he says the more good shots you take the more goals you tend to score again shoot from inside the box the way you create good shots is through your offensive activity and this is a good parenthesis, and of course, the reaction of the defense to the offensive activity. So I think I'm thinking of like a pyramid, like this offensive activity, which you and I, I think are most interested in mm-hmm. as sort of most of what soccer is. Mm-hmm. This is maybe the base of the pyramid. Above that is finding a good quality shot. And above that is putting that good quality shot past the keeper. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, so of, these, a lot of analytics get stuck at the top of that pyramid. So it's yes. that, he's, that he's acknowledging the base of the pyramid, the part that, that really matters. 
Yeah, so we're going to see a step-by-step -step detailed model of expected goals, the, you know, the shot-based metric we've all come to love or the other thing. And But to do it, he places it within this framework that involves the other offensive production process, which I think is cool. Hmm. So he says, let's take a step further and try to think about shot quality. So he wants to focus in on what is a good shot. It's really composed of two things. This answers my question from before, if I just been patient <laughs> and he says see below and unfortunately again there's a picture that's lost because this blog is deleted and we're reanimating it through dark magic um so but he says first there is shot selection slash creation did the shooter receive the ball in a good position slash select a good shot so he's talking about what we think of today as you know pre-shot expected goals standard expected goals like is the shot taken from a good spot yeah. And it, here's another basketball thing slipping in. This is, you know, this is a different writer, but I see that shot selection and I always cringe a little bit because shot selection just seems like more of a thing in basketball where you're going to shoot at the end of a possession almost always, mm -hmm. every possession. So the team as a whole needs to make smart shot selections, right? In soccer, it's not always that way. It's more about creation, but he tags these two things together in a way that I think is helpful for anyone reading the post. So selection slash creation. But again, we have another we have another reference to another sport here. Yeah. And then really shot selection literally just means is it a good choice to shoot right here and right now? And I think that a lot of times in event data we kind of gloss over that because we don't have enough information to tell for sure whether it was yeah. a good choice to shoot. We don't know where teammates are off the ball, how they're moving. We don't know if there's defensive pressure, if the view of yeah. goal is obscured. But if we did know all those things, then we could have, you know, real discussions. And I think that video analysts and coaches do have real discussions about was it a good choice to shoot in this situation? Shot selection is a real thing, right? Yeah, I, I, I hate the aesthetics of shot selection, but you're right. It is, it is true that on some level it's there. And he, so he keeps going and he says the, the second determinant of the shot quality is the skill with which the shooter sent the ball towards the goal, given the position from which he shot it. Mm -hmm. Did he hit a soft dribbler right into the goalie's hands or fly a sure goal over the top of the net? Or did he nail a bicycle kick into the upper right corner? Mm -hmm. Finishing quality determines how much value a shooter created from the opportunity he had, regardless of what the goalie did or did not do to stop it. Mm -hmm. So All he is still so far. Yeah. Like, and, and this, again, this is before the great finishing debates, right? Yeah. He's just we're, sort we're of stating it this. as a, yeah. We, we talked about how this is the classics. Like we're gonna we're gonna yeah. do this post over and over for the next ten years, and they're gonna have a finishing post as well. And I think we might save that one for a later episode or something on finishing. Yeah. But yeah. he acknowledges it's here, right? It is a, a truth of soccer that you're doing offensive production, it's some combination of passing, dribbling, and other things, movement off the ball, etc. That you're gonna get a some shot with a given quality on it, and then from there, it really does matter in terms of whether that shot is a goal, where you put the thing. Right. That's real. Mm -hmm. um, he says, now we've we've also spent a lot of time statistically analyzing everything leading up to the creation of a shot. In fact, this is the bulk of the work in understanding goal creation. I love that. He mm -hmm. just puts it out. there. He's like, we're talking about expected goals. We're talking about finishing and do not be distracted. The bulk of soccer is in the other stuff. But for now, we're going to go into more detail on the statistical framework just for goal creation from shots. So we'll temporarily, for a few posts, ignore the bottom part of the graphic. So that bottom part must have been the offensive production. It's a good thing he's ignoring it since, you know, we can't see it. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so from here, I think like we we could we could jump over to like they do a shot quality post, mm. um, and it might be worth jumping over there just to lay out like what their parameters are. Yeah. Um, so I'll just read quickly from that. He, he says, it turns out that shot distance is the single variable that influences shot quality the most. However, the number of opposing players between the shooter and the goal and the level of defensive pressure on the shooter also end up being quite important. Goalie Which is, distance. That's, I mean, go that's ahead. notable right there, right off the bat, because all the expected goals models that we're going to see after stat DNAs for years and years don't have those other two variables. They, they do. Everybody hits on shot distance is important. Everybody hits on shot angle is important. Angle. Body part is important. But... Yeah. A lot of XG models for a very long time don't have whether there are defenders in between the shooter and the goal, which is a pretty important thing. And they, they might try to proxy it with other context, right? Mm -hmm. Fast break or, or mm -hmm. something like that. But he, yeah, the, the initial expected goal model here that's in the public sort of blogging domain just like has the stuff we would want, right? Which is, which is interesting. Um, and again, that comes from them investing all this money to collect data themselves and to add in some stuff that wasn't in Opta's offering. And yeah, I think one thing that's funny is, so he says, he says shoot, shooter body orientation also has an impact on a small number of shots by um, bringing the shot quality down when a player is not directly facing the goal. The extreme example, this is a bicycle kick. That's it's like an insane. Yeah. That's yeah. Those data. That's, we haven't even got there yet. In yeah. 2022, we're, we're still, yeah. It, it blows me away. One one funny thing about all these posts is uh, the comments section on all the Statine posts is just spam from like China and Russia. <laughs> There's like uh, some account called Cheap Sunglasses that just sort of says like in, in broken English, like, wow, amazing post. It helps me understand. And then they, they do the same post on every single post or they try to sell sunglasses. So I, I, I'll return to that shot framework to walk down so we did shot quality right the next step is finishing quality they say mm -hmm. a big determining factor as to whether a goal goes in is how a shooter takes the opportunity he was given we get more information about this from the shot itself and this is the post shot ev you know it almost says post shot xg right but yep. the, the terms are so uncannily the same um, a simple and obvious part of a post shot ev is that the shot that is blocked a shot that is blocked or not hit on target has a zero percent chance of scoring however further than that, the speed and the location of the shot, particularly relative to the goalkeeper, are important determinants of whether the shot will go into the net or not. We measure the post-shot EV using additional variables that are revealed about the quality of the shot after it is struck. So this is still the shit that like we've only recently seen in some leagues by some data providers like in recent history, like shot velocity, hmm. right? Body pose and shot velocity. It's back there in 2011. It's like Kind and, of mind blowing. And I think that it's it's noteworthy and admirable that they didn't say that what the shooter adds is the difference between goals and pre-shot expected goals, but the difference between post-shot expected yes. goals and pre-shot expected goals, uh, which uh, that's that's still with the XG models that we have today, like that's mostly noise and you know it's it's right. very unstable and it's not really a great metric of of finishing skill as we would want it to exist, but if we did know all of the things that he outlines in this post and we used those things to measure the difference between pre-shot and post-shot expected goals while allowing for the fact that sometimes goalkeepers can make insane saves on shots that you know are likely to go in, then we're getting really close to measuring how good shooters are at shooting. 
at taking their shots. Yeah, and the reason he makes that important step, and it's so obvious to him, is because the next part in his little diagram that we can't see is goalie performance, right? So he says, now the goalie comes into play. The shot is in the air, and he needs to stop it. How often does he do it compared to expectations? All we need to calculate this is the number of goals he allowed divided by the total post-shot EV of the shots he faced. This is our measure of goalie performance. In this specific case, <clears throat> within the offensive goal creation framework, goalie performance is how well the opposing team did in stopping your team's shot. However, when we flip this framework and use it to analyze goals against, the goalie performance will be a measure of your team's goalie. So that's, again, I mean, mostly the mainstream today, like, analytics take on goalies. It's like, how do they do at saving goals or allowing goals in relative to the post-shot XG? So, so even on these XG adjacent conversations in this post, they're they're way ahead of the game here and talking about how should we measure the different skills that go into creating shots, uh, selecting shots, taking shots, stopping them. Uh, they've they've kind of got the whole package around those conversations. They've they've really got the big picture here, but they don't stop there, which is cool. They they say, okay, we've talked about this shot quality stuff. We've talked about finishing. Let's talk about the thing that we think is most important, which is that giant offensive production at the base of the pyramid, right? That's right. And again, we would just be so spoiled. I I mean, if they hadn't done this, it would still be an amazing sort of historical document, these posts. Absolutely. Um, but they, you're right. And and they all along the way, whenever they're talking about expected goals, they're like, yeah, yeah, we're just going to get this all out there, but there's more to soccer than this, which I just find insanely good. Um, I, I do want to mention, I, I, I skipped over when I was reading an excerpt, but in that shot framework post we just went through, they do directly reference our our other heroes in the postscript episode one. He says, incidentally, our framework is the continuation of a discussion that is already happening on this topic. On football, which is Sarah, has some recent posts on the importance of shot creation and shot quality. And then he links to it. And he says, soccer by the numbers, which is Chris Anderson, has also been measuring finishing quality with goal divided by shot and goals divided by shot on target and shots on target divided by shot ratios in many posts. And then he links to his blog as well. Mm. So this is cool. I mean, this happened with decision technology in the last episode, albeit later in, in time in September of 2011. But here in March 2011, not only does StatDNA jump in, but they directly reference these other bloggers. And I don't know if they were at the Sloan conference, but it sounds like they were. It sounds like Sarah ran into them and talk mm -hmm. to them or she talked and, to somebody that knew about this and 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 this takes us back to what we talked about in the very first episode like why we're talking about blogs why those particular blogs were the ones that we started with we called it the spiritual birth of soccer analytics blogging not because they were the first soccer blogs but because they started this conversation and this conversation yeah. has continued to kind of move us along to where we are now and you know obviously the people at stat dna were very smart and thoughtful but probably you don't arrive at as complete a view of what soccer analytics should be as they did in, in, you know, a very short time frame, unless you've also been reading other people thinking about these things and maybe getting some stuff wrong and maybe yeah. imagining things that they don't even have the capacity to create yet, like Howard's imaginary uh, possession value thing. But yeah. when you have, you know, multiple minds coming at this from different angles you get to the end goal faster and, and stat DNA, I think probably took advantage of those conversations. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful thing. And, and so, so moving on to this shift, you mentioned from the shot production, the, the goal probability from shooting back through the framework into the other, other offensive production, some mysterious cloud on a diagram we can't see. 
there's a post called why players teams are undifferentiated on passing skill from May 4th. So again, they're moving along here in 2011. What's your reaction to that? Players and teams are undifferentiated in passing skill? Like it's bullshit. Makes yeah. <laughs> it's a scandalous uh, headline. Yeah, no, I love it. I love a good... They've got a good editor. editor. Yeah. Um, so I, I, what they do in this post is, you mentioned their plan to hits long before these things become hits. And they do XG and they do all these other things. This this here is basically their version of an X pass model, which is to say, player takes a pass. Can we estimate the sort of average likelihood of that pass being completed? Sort of neutral value in terms of goals, but the pass being completed based on some factors. That's what That's they're right. doing. In, in the same way that XG measures the probability that a shot will score based on some contextual clues. X-Pass measures the, the probability of the pass will be completed based on some contextual clues about what's happened in the possession, where the ball is, that sort of thing. And Statine, they basically come to the same conclusion many other bloggers do, which is like pass completion percentage is bullshit. That's like their starting point. Mm -hmm. so, so again, Jason Rosenfeld's writing, he says, we decided therefore to partially address this problem by running a regression to determine pass difficulty and then adjust passing skill based on the difficulty of passes attempted. We ran regression on over 100,000 passes from Brazil, Syria. I don't know if that's enough passes probably today, but that's all. That's what they had. It's a good start. And also, well, yeah, and also looked at several subsamples: passes in the attacking third, passes on the ground on the attacking third, and all roads lead to one conclusion. He says, after adjusting for difficulty, pass completion percentage is nearly equal among all players and teams. Said another way, the skill in executing a pass is almost equal across all players and teams as pass difficulty and pass completion percentage are nearly completely correlated. He says that's, that's a surprising finding. It is. It's it still kind of is today, but it's 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 really interesting to to read through how they get there, I guess. Yeah. Let's discuss a bit more of the analysis that was done. He says we took completed pass as the de dependent variable in a logistic regression that included the independent variables of levels of defensive pressure on the passer pass distance, direction passers facing, and whether the pass was one-timed, and if the pass was with the head or the foot, and if the pass was hit on the ground or in the air. We also used the field zone of the next touch, parentheses, whether the pass was complete or incomplete, as a proxy for the level of pressure on the receipt of the pass, because we know that defensive pressure tends to increase as you move up the field and towards the goal. Mm -hmm. We needed to do this because we can't really measure pressure on the intended recipient of an incomplete pass. All the coefficients we tried were extremely significant, and the regression had a very strong fit. So then he summarizes these factors, but I, I think I just read them over. Pass distance pressure, pressure on recipient as proxied by field position. Forward pass, air pass, head pass, one-time pass. Okay. And And when you take all these factors into account, they basically can't tell the difference between good passers and bad passers. He finds that the correlation between pass percentage and this sort of adjusted expected pass com completion percentage is 0.94 across the entire sample. Um, so he says, so viewed this way, the differentiated passing skill is non-existent at this level of play, at least in terms of executing a pass. And that's mm -hmm. important because mm -hmm. executing a pass is not the only thing you're trying to do that's when right. you're passing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it sounds like this is similar to the XG conversation where you you kind of realize, yes, finishing skill exists. It's real. Some players are better at kicking the ball into the goal than others, but that's not the most important skill, right? Getting those good shots in the first place is the most important skill. 
with XFAS, he seems to be saying, like, yeah, there's probably some difference between how, you know, Andrea Pirlo passes and how you and I yeah. pass uh, if you and I were even good enough to be in the same league as Pirlo in the first place. But what kinds of passes are you trying to complete, right? What What's your pass selection? Yeah, and, and he talks about, I mean, you're talking about Pirlo. He talks about Javi here. He says, mm-hmm. for example, is Javi an excellent passer because he can place a pass on a dime? Probably, right? Yeah. Or is it more his ability to find pockets of space where no defensive pressure exists to receive the ball in and his miraculous ball control allows him to continue to avoid the pressure and hit higher value pot passes for an equal level of difficulty? I believe Javi himself has spoken to that question. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're intimately familiar with quotes from Javi. Ja- Javi has, has famously said, my job is to find space all day long. I'm looking here, there. Is there space over there? Space, space, space. You know, this is this is what he's doing. He's not trying to yeah. thread the needle between three defenders uh, because even yeah. if you're a good passer like Javi, that's just not a very smart thing to do. What he's trying to do is find that guy who's in space so that that player will have time to find the next good pass, right? Yeah, I, I find you know, Rosenfeld's instincts here to be very good in that regard. And, you know, he continues, many players put themselves in difficult passing situations like the opposite of Javi. Mm-hmm. because they dwell on the ball too long and on a, and upon receiving the ball are not able to reposition their bodies in a way that opens up the field. In order to look at this, we need to understand better the situation a passer receives the ball in and whether he reduces or improves his relative ability to complete a pass it's with his actions bet- between then and then the time of the pass. Um, and then he sort of segues into where they're going next, which is even more exciting in terms of passing. He says another very important factor is potential danger created by a pass. We have a statistic for which is called P-Val, passing value, and measures the percent increase that a team's chance of scoring a goal increases with each pass. We believe P-Val is where players' values in passing should be measured because that's where, where they do create the value differentially. So now we're moving into that possession value realm. That's right. And, and you know, we, we mentioned in the first episode the winner of the research contest, I'm doing some Quentin Tarantino stuff here, is going to be Sarah Rudd. You know, we're sitting here in May and June in blog post history world. They're going to announce her as as the winner of the contest. And the way she's going to do that is she creates this Markov chain thing, which we'll get to. But it's like you can you can tell why perhaps why she's the winner of the contest is she's talking about things that they're interested in. And if you just listen to our last episode, right, these are also things that decision technology and Ian Graham seemed interested in as well, mm-hmm. whether or not they were blogged about, whether or not they were hidden behind sort of power and, rankings. And and because Sarah does blog about her possession value model that she eventually comes up with, and because she wins this contest, her paper where she introduces this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but it's kind of remembered as the first public possession value model. Yeah. We've already seen that's probably not the case. Uh, like Ian Graham had something kind of similar, and now we're seeing Stat DNA had something similar. And and when I've spoken to Sarah, she told me, you know, I was kind of surprised. Like I, I wrote this paper, I introduced this model, and then I basically found out Stat DNA had already done all that. <laughs> yeah. Which apparently is the story of soccer analytics. So everything that we do, Stat DNA had already done all that. I guess, right? And, and it, it is wild. I mean, it, so if, if we keep moving along, right, the next post in June is by Ben Alomar. 
says, how we measure past value creation, advancing the ball. Mm -hmm. Right. This this mirror is, you know, from a from a literary perspective, this mirror is the very first post, right? The key to goal scoring, shoot inside the box. How we measure pass value. It's not pass percentage. It's not even expected pass, pass percentage expected. minus yeah. yeah. Advancing the ball. That's how that's what we care about. Mm -hmm. So he says, and I've got some excerpts here as well. He says, with the stat DNA play-by-play -play data, I was able to look at the probability that a team will score on a given possession, given the location and a host of other variables. Sounds a lot like possession value models. The estimated probability or expected value, EV, you know, they call it. It's missing the P, but it's probably better, it's probably a better name. Expected value is probably a better name than expected possession value. Uh, changes with each play. So the change in the probability could be calculated with each pass. Incomplete passes and passes that reduce the probability of scoring create negative changes, while passes that increase the odds of scoring are positive changes. Separating the pass into their proper categories and averaging the change in goal scoring probability we can see the average value of a pass between two zones. Mm -hmm. That should sound a little familiar. Very much so. Um, and this, this is really kind of where we're at with event data possession value models today. They are yeah. primarily measures of ball progression. Yeah, and, and then he gives a couple data points. You know, a couple of interesting things emerge. He says passes from zone 23 or 28 we don't, we can't see their diagram, but he explains it. He says, these are generally crosses, have about half the increase in expected value that passes from zones 20 and 21 into the box have. It's probably like the half spaces or the, or zone, what we would think of as zone 14, right? Mm -hmm. He says 4% versus 8% increases in, in goal scoring probability. When we include incomplete passes and incomplete crosses into the analysis, we see that passes in from the wing have an average EV improvement that is much lower than the average EV passes from zones, whatever these zones are on top of the box. So he, he sort of says, this leads us to believe Brazilian Serie A teams could be crossing the ball more than they should instead of emphasizing playing up the middle of the field. Wait, run me back through it. How does he get to yeah. this conclusion that Brazilian teams are crossing too much? So he's, he's going, take a bunch of passes from like the crossing zones, right? Yeah. And take a bunch of passes from I, I can't see it, but I assume it's like on, on half spaces. Box. Yeah, top of the box. Yeah, yeah. So first, if you just look at the successful passes, right, you'll find that the successful passes from the top of the box are like double the value of the successful passes from the wings. <clears throat> sure, if if you complete them. Yeah, but then, and you know, this is the part that's difficult because you never know where an incomplete pass was going exactly. But he says then once you once you also look at all the incomplete passes, you you get to this answer of the average value of an attempt from either zone, and That's those right. values are also different. That's right. So he's saying that even even though you're not that likely to complete a pass from the top of the box into the box, when you take into account your your expected value of that pass, yeah. it's better at the top of the box. Yeah, and and now is, is he also doing the extra piece which you should do in that analysis which is how easy is it to get to the crossing zones in the first place right getting to the top of the box probably not but probably sarah does you know what i mean probably like sarah. with the full markov model so if we talk about practical um sort of applications of this the very next post and we're doing a lot of posts but that's what we like here very next post is post. another it's another classic top 40 hit which is should you take goal kicks long or short we need like a soccer analytics jukebox where we can just press b12 yeah goal kicks do it 
I've seen, you know, you've seen this article many times. The one that always sticks out to me is is Jared Young's an American soccer analysis. Uh, but he was, you're, you're hurting my feelings here. Uh, <laughs> Jared, Jared did this like six years before I did. Everybody's done this. Jared did it very well. Uh, but, Tom Orville did it, I think, for uh, the Opti Conference once. Uh, yeah. Everybody asks, you know, is it better to take long goal kicks and not risk losing the ball in your own half? Or is it better to take short goal kicks, invite the press, try to play through it? And there are different ways to come at that question. Uh, but everybody who's done it carefully, I think, generally tends to come down on the side of favoring short goal kicks. Is that where these guys come out? And, and it why, is, yeah. How do they tackle a question? Well, let's see. I don't know if I want to read the whole thing here, but to answer your question, yes, they come up with short short goal kicks are better, and it has to do with um, the he uses this sort of p value the the framework that they're that they're using. Um, so he intros it. He says, you know, the theory behind kicking long, I understand. You know, you avoid a disastrous turnover of the ball, and you create a potential quick attacking opportunity to flick on with the flick on accompanying. Uh, the the pass has a couple of nice bounces, right? Mm-hmm. However, the fact that you're creating a 50-50 ball in the midfield off a set piece with no pressure on the set piece—that's an interesting take, right? Mm-hmm. Like you get to you get full. It's like one of the few times in soccer you get full agency to control sort of what you do with this ball. You're not pressured at all. And and not only is the passer not pressured, but the receivers are not pressured. Now, at least, although the rules were different back then, but you you can position guys where no defender is going to want to press them. So you can get that first pass off 100% of the time. Yeah, he says at the time, he says 90% of the goal kicks in the Premier League are long. So he says, you know, maybe I was missing something. Um, mm. This is this is uh, Rosenfeld and Gang are the authors here. Um, so he says, we decided to analyze our data and see what our probability models would say about predicted goals scored and conceded due to goal kicks through the air compared to those on the ground. What we found is pretty interesting. Teams could add one to two net goals per year. So we got goal units here mm-hmm. by booting the ball through the air less. Mm-hmm. The analysis is pretty simple. First, we looked at who the next outright possession on aerial goal kicks by possession. We don't include headed passes, flick-ons, clearances, or deflections as a possession, only if a player actually gains control of the ball, strikes a one-time pass or a set piece, including throw-ins is awarded. So you've got some defi- you know, data definitions that are boring, but probably probably very important. Uh, what we found matched uh, the author's intuition. Uh, in the EPL, 49% of the aerial goal kicks were possessed by the offense and 51% by the defense. Mm-hmm. So it is a 50-50 ball, basically. Now, when the offense did get possession, they had a slightly more favorable opportunity general than uh, an average midfield ball touch, roughly a 2% chance of scoring within a possession versus about a 1.5% chance. I like that he includes this because that's also what, what we found before. It's like just the average touch in a game in the middle of the field is like one and a half percent chance of scoring yeah. in that possession. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the same in 2011 in Brazil. We then looked at the 10% of goal kicks that were passed on the ground for a, a slower direct attack. Maybe maybe this is Premier League. Yeah, this is, sorry. I said Brazil is Premier League. Okay. We looked at those 10% on the ground. Of these, uh, in 93% of the occasions, the team taking the goal kick was able to get the ball across the midfield stripe or further before losing possession. We can assume that these possessions had the average midfield goal scoring probability of 1.5%. This gives an advantage in terms of goal scoring probability. It's a long aerial goal kick, but not nearly enough to make up for losing possession 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. So then I think they look at the actual results of those 
goal kicks as well, just like a full straight on raw analysis. So this is all so, really good analysis. And and there are other factors that make it more difficult. You know, usually your teams that are taking short goal kicks are teams that are good at playing out of the back and probably are more right. than their opponents. And there are a lot of complicating factors. There are also questions about, you know, whether you should measure this in terms of the the likelihood of scoring on that possession or does, you know, the likelihood of second balls, uh, yeah. likelihood of losing the ball as you try to build up, you know, are possessions the right unit? Should we be looking at time units instead? There are a lot of ways to do this analysis, but the the important thing is that they are asking this question. They're asking it in terms of goal probabilities, not just like past completion percentages and things like that. Uh, and, yeah. and the question itself is very like a, a fundamental analytics question, right? It's it's one of yeah. risk and reward. In a way, it's almost exactly the same thing as the NFL, should we go for it on fourth down or should we punt, right? right? Is it, should we take this risk in short yardage or should we just boot the ball downfield and, and try to play defense? Yeah, and and I think it's great because you grab the one discrete moment that is kind of measurable, but then you, you learn something about the game because discrete moments connect to continuous moments in soccer. You, right. Your reference to NFL, I don't know if you meant to do this, but it's a, it's a wonderful segue into, I think the last post we'll talk about in this episode. I, I did Which, not. I will pretend that I had this all planned out in my head. That's right. So the last post we'll talk about um, is titled A Framework for Tactical Analysis and Individual Offensive Production Assessment in Soccer Using Markov Chains, hyphen, the research competition winner. And it is by Sarah Rudd in September of 2011. So um, our commenter on Chris Anderson's original soccer blog has now become not just a blogger, but a guest blogger. A cross-posting. Blogger. Yeah. She is, she is cross-posting. So Sarah writes, Charlie Adam, a fantastic player who, for some reason, insists on taking a shot from 40 yards out every game. I remember this, by the way, He at, at Blackpool. Charlie Adam had this reputation, this, the Scottish player and midfielder, for just like launching these long shots. Mm-hmm. She says, from a fan perspective, it drives me crazy because in almost every instance, all it accomplishes is giving the ball back to their team. He never scores, and he rarely comes close to even troubling the keeper with these long-range shots. Well, that already makes her kind of a unique sort of fan, right? Because 99% of the fans in that stadium are screaming shoot as soon as Charlie Adam has a look at goal from 35 yards. Dude, I mean, he made a huge career out of this Black Bull season. I mean, he moved to Liverpool, I think, in the Camoli years. And people love these. They love this, his delivery, and they love these long shots. Yeah. I remember this about it. Like, in my head, it's like Xavi Alonso had some – occasionally he would shoot from half field, but not that often. Charlie Adam is like the other one I think of. Michael Parker's in the MLS scored one time. And when but those shots when those shots go in, they're like the most fun thing in soccer, right? They're it's the best. People love them. It feels so satisfying. And yet you've got these joyless nerds like Sarah saying, Wait a second, that's if, if you look at the percentages here, that's probably not a good thing to be doing. She says, Yeah, from an analytics perspective, it got me thinking, how much of an opportunity is Charlie Adam wasting with these shots? Can we estimate how likely a team is to score from a given game state? Parentheses, the position of the ball, the defensive pressure, and the defensive shape. Mm. Given those estimates, what does that tell us about a team's tendencies and individual performance? So she basically says, Yeah, you, you know, you're very unlikely to score from that shot. You could pass it around and find something better. Mm-hmm. So th- she says, This is what I, I wanted to seek out. <clears throat> She says, I decided to use Markov chains with absorption states to model possessions. And oh, man, those are big words. Yeah, I, don't, I can't really explain a Markov chain. But but she, because this is a blog, right, It's it was a 
research paper submission, but also a blog, she links over to where she got the idea, which I love. And as, as you mentioned, it's, it's NFL analytics. So she links over to this blog called Drive By Football. Uh, the author is Keith Goldner. He, he was a student at Northwestern at the time. And he would go on to work for the 76ers and Oklahoma City Thunder and ESPN. Sport guy. Yeah. That's right. And then I think he ultimately he started an analyst consultancy, which got bought by FanDuel, which is where he is now. Okay. The magic of LinkedIn. <laughs> so she links over to his explainer. Um, and but then she says, Hey, if you aren't familiar with Markov chains, basically they're a way of modeling an outcome based on the probability of transitioning from one state to another. In this example, the states would be a combination of position on the field, defensive pressure, and the shape of the defense. The transitions would be actions performed by the players, pass, shoot, dribble, tackle, et cetera. One of the keys to Markov chains is they require the current state is independent from the previous state, meaning it doesn't matter how we got here. Every time we we're in the state, things could be, should be the same. And she points out that's, that's a big assumption in soccer in a way that it's not in the NFL, because in the NFL, you start your down, it's a, it's a clean sheet, right? In soccer, how you got there can frequently make a difference. Yeah, I mean, the, the jump from hit this guy, Keith Goldner's analysis in the NFL to what Sarah's doing is remarkable for the same reasons Howard, you know, charts out in his original Moneyball and Soccer post, right? Hmm. All those big words that he used, like the states for, for Goldner at drive-by football were like down and distance and field position and time left maybe in the half or something. Mm -hmm. But she's got all these much more, much more slippery ones, right? Um, so she groups... Let's see if I can summarize this. She groups everything into zones, uh, and then she adds zone. She adds game states for set pieces, and a game state uh, might be a combination of a zone with some kind of descriptor of where the defense is. Are you behind the defense? Are you in front of them? That's right. So we're still basically measuring ball progression. Are you getting it in, yep. from a zone that's farther away from goal to a zone that's closer to goal? But critically, we've also got some information about how the defense is organized at that time. Because, you know, getting the ball to the top of the box is a lot more valuable if it's a one-on-one -on -one with the goalie than if you're yeah. just lobbing it into two organized banks of four. Yeah, it's, and it's worth noting that it's possible, right? <clears throat> Stat DNA has a level of detail in their data here that allows them to do this much more accurately. They mm -hmm. actually have some defender positioning mm -hmm. without having tracking data. Um, she says the great thing about Markov chains is that once we have the transition probabilities, so she calculates these transition probabilities between all these different states. Mm. How likely are you to go from one to the other, and what's the probability of scoring? Uh, we could calculate the probability of the ball ending up in one of the absorbing states, which is like score a goal or turn it over, yep. after an infinite number of moves. Um, it's like she had seen Man City <clears throat> before they were Man City. Right. So by looking at an infinite number of moves, it makes no difference that the ball ends up in transition state after one, five, 10, or 100 transitions. Hmm. So she then, she's got the framework, and she, she, she ends this post with sort of two practical applications that I think are just worth calling out, because these are, these are all banger posts, not only for their framework and theory, but they actually try to apply them. So she says short versus long set pieces. We already did goal kicks right in the last post. Mm -hmm. she's she's looking at short versus long corners mm. which is also very much a blogger thing to do right uh for the given data set 
which is only a sample of matches for each team for the 2010-2011 Premier League season, league-wide, the answer is that long corners are significantly more likely to result in a goal eventually than short corners. Mm. She tags that with 2.4% versus 1.7. Mm-hmm. And she does say one thing to note is that I defined a change of possession by a controlled, deliberate action by the opposing team. Again, boring data definitions. But important. But yeah, it means clearances are not considered a, a controlled action. Right. Right. So, um, and then she's, she says you can use this to measure how teams defend corners by taking the inverse. And she finds there are some teams in the Premier League that uh, defend short corners much worse than long ones or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And then she sort of ends this um, sort of where we left off episode three with Castrol, kind of. She has a, a section called individual offensive contribution. With each state having a value assigned to it, <clears throat> we could take a look at how much an individual affects a team's chance at scoring a goal by looking at the difference in value from the state the player receives the ball in to the state the player puts the ball. For example, let's say a player in a state with a value of a half a percent of a goal plays a through ball to their teammate, putting them into a good goal-scoring opportunity with a value of <clears throat> 25%. Passing player would be credited with creating 0.2 units of offense. Yeah, the difference in the likelihood of scoring before the pass versus after the pass. And you personally would be upset by this because she's crediting the passer with all of that change and ignoring the receiver's contribution to creating this pass. But that's right. That doesn't matter. The what what really matters is we've measured the accounting. The, the yeah. accounting is you know that's that's your thing. The, yeah, the accounting is sound, but but yeah, I, I think she even mentions like divvying up credit is difficult. Yeah, but um. <clears throat> If the receiving player goes on to score a goal, they would be credited with 0.75 units of offense. And if they miss, they would receive a penalty of 0.25 units of offense. Units of offense is such a weird name for this. Yeah. <clears throat> and I do disagree with that, right? I, <laughs> and we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to in the history of blogging, right, where we start thinking about, is it a mistake, right, to credit uh, and blame a player based on their their goal conversion in a given moment versus their expected goals that they're shooting. Mm-hmm. But it's still solid accounting if you think about just measuring the value of things that happen. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so then I think she gives us like a, a list of players who performed well in the Premier League that season. Yep. Right? And if, if I remember, it's been a while since I looked at this list, but there were, there were some finds on there, some ones where it looked like the model was really working and some where it looked like, I, I don't know how we got this result. Like probably something is is off about this model. And that's how it is with all of these possession value models. Like yeah. there's always something a little bit off. There's always something a little bit wrong in your, in your player rankings um, as, as there was with Ian Graham's uh, thing, as there is when, you know, stats yeah. post their OBV leaders today, like there's always an issue here. Uh, but I, I appreciate that she didn't just give us a list of players and who had performed well, but she was also already asking what sorts of tactical soccer solving questions can we tackle with this model? I, I like the set piece questions much more than the, the player rankings personally. That, that's right. The, the player rankings don't make for as good a blog post. They make for better, I don't know website views, right? I'll admit, when I first looked at her presentation, that was the first place that I flipped, right? Let's (laughs) let's see the player rankings. Let's know if this thing's any good. But it's not the really interesting thing that we can do with this model. And it's great that Sarah and StatDNA both 
were very curious about the solving soccer stuff uh, from the beginning. Even, you know, if, even though event data can't always answer those questions in a satisfactory way, uh, it's, it's, it's good to keep those things in mind. Yeah. So, you know, at this point, <clears throat> we can start talking about what, what this meant and sort of what happened from here, but we've already mentioned on a previous episode, <clears throat> Sarah is hired by StatDNA. So she wins the research competition. She's a guest blogger, but that's sort of a footnote in the real history of this, which is she joins StatDNA mm -hmm. and they post about that. Um, and then the, you know, the posts just kind of dry up. There's no announcement. They just kind of go quiet. Yeah. I mean, before they do, they, they guest post the other finalists and that might be readers might enjoy going and reading those posts as well. <clears throat> what are, what are the titles of these other finalists? There's, there's like a team from Harvard about transitioning from winning to losing impact of style of play on soccer match outcomes. There's a, a brief description of network-based and geospatial methods in their application to game analysis. There are like some pretty nerdy complex stuff in here. <laughs> There's a few more posts after this, uh, but eventually they they go dark. Their last post is in February or March of 2012. Uh, we know now they are they're purchased by Arsenal at the end of 2012, and then the blog is deleted in uh, late 2013. So you can find it in the Internet Archive, along with all the spammy commenters at the end of each post. You but, you know, we, we could um, we could pause and reflect on this is another instance where an early contribution beyond expected goals, uh, but but also expected goals, but contributions in, in the field of the actual non-shot stuff, possession value and and tactical interests and passing and all these things just disappears you know mm -hmm. we've talked about this in in our private conversations as our atlantis for soccer analysis yeah this, this lost golden city that sank beneath the sea and and uh, yeah we, we didn't really have a lot of these conversations i mean we've called them classics we've said people rewrote these posts and yeah. it was really like years later people kind of rediscovering these things from scratch rather than building on a lot of what stat dna had already done really good work on yeah they they are they're like atlantis because they have they seem to have like this technology that we didn't know existed <laughs> in or something yeah or it's like the ancient aliens uh shows about egypt and stuff right. uh, but but they they appear to have this you know early insight early technology Soccer analytics, when you read this, appears charted in a very specific direction of, of possession value and Markov chains and, and these sorts of things, ball progression metrics. And it's going to be like a really long time before that actually is the, the thrust of soccer analytics blogging, at least. It's probably yeah. happening in clubs. Arsenal, they get this thing. Liverpool, mm -hmm. they got Ian Graham and his... Castro index and whatever the backbone of it was behind, mm. right? So clubs are doing this. Clubs are thinking about soccer this way. Spurs had um, decision technology as their yeah. Although I think that the fact that we know that all three of these clubs kind of were working from similar early insights circa 2010, 2011, and what actually happened to them over the next decade shows us how much that data insights are subservient to 
decision-making processes to how your front office is run, but yeah. that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. For that, you need to go to the uh, Substack absolute unit. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I, I think that there's a tension here in what we've been saying, which is that these bloggers uh, initiated this conversation that kind of has, has produced this continuous strain of analytics thinking that led us to where we are today. But we're also saying that these bloggers were our Atlantis, that StatDNA had this lost technology, and that the conversations that we had, you know, five years on where we kind of redid these classic posts weren't necessarily informed by the work that had been done in 2011. How do we reconcile those things? In what ways were these bloggers influential, even though we may not have actually read their stuff? Yeah, I'll tell you, I mean, there are some characters we haven't introduced that sort of do pick up the torch here. Mm -hmm. As an example, so so Sarah stops blogging pretty quickly after being announced that she's been hired as Stadina. She she starts to keep going with it, you can tell, <laughs> and then kind of disappears. They snap her up fast. But somebody else posts on her blog after that for a few posts. It was, it was Ravi Ramanini. He posts two or three times, and then he starts his own called Analyze What He Is, his own blog. You know, there are other characters in this time that would have been contemporaries. So in theory or reading, um, you know, the StatTNA blogs and and um, Decision Technology, I guess. And you know, these are names like, so we mentioned Ravi, James Grayson, Omar Shadhuri, Mark Taylor, <clears throat> Devin Pluler, and many others. So there is a there is a wave sort of 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 torchbearers mm -hmm. into this sort of more modern <clears throat> soccer analytics. Um, so it's sort of an indirect influence thing, right? Like even if the people who are blogging in 2018 haven't read the bloggers of 2011, they probably read the bloggers of 2016 who had read the bloggers of 2014 and yeah. go far enough back, like this indirect influence continues, even if, uh, the exact ideas and and maybe kind of the most advanced articulation of those ideas didn't survive in this conversation. That's right. There, there's always these other perspectives. And we mentioned these different sports keep popping up, basketball and NFL football mm -hmm. as references or or as maybe they're not references, but they seem like they're there behind the scenes. Um, and that that will persist, right? There will always be different perspectives looking at soccer. And then the other piece that you've mentioned before, the geological force of just data availability. I mean, I am struck by, this is a good time to do it on the podcast, where, how far Sarah came in terms of the posts from shot counts versus shot execution. Yeah. MLS roster rules and, you know, those kind of posts to a, a fucking Markov chain expected value that is sort of like state of the art today yeah and and some of that i'm sure was just having a few more months to think about these things to talk about them with smart people like chris and howard but a lot of it was just you can only ask so many questions when all you have is shot count data and you can ask a lot more interesting questions when you have this rich event data that has some information about defensive pressure just the data availability is what changes the types of questions yeah. that we're able to ask, the complexity of the answers that we can give to them. And it makes it possible for the first time, I think, for this group of bloggers to ask 
the solving soccer type of questions to ask the questions about how does the game really work? How is it played? And one uh, interesting like knock-on effect of this, right? So this is the second data company that entered the blogging ring here. We talked about decision technology. <clears throat> Statine was actually first. So Statine, decision technology. But there's a lurking other data giant out there who in our story so far has yet to enter the blogging ring, but will. And that's Opta via their Opta Pro. I mean, a future episode will need to discuss Opta and Opta Pro and data availability and some of the important milestones of data availability that made the blogging scene flourish, right? But when you think about the influence of Sarah and Chris and Howard and Ian Graham, you know, very well could be in this trend towards, I'm a data company. Oh, wait, look at all these blogs. We need to do that too. Yeah, We need to get the data out there and let people run with it. And it is always amazing how quickly someone with the technical skills, the curiosity for the game runs when they've got the data, right? And the resources. As we wrap up this little four episode arc on the ancients, we're gonna turn yeah. next to tactics blogging. And even though these things seem very far apart uh, at this stage in at the beginning of the 2010s, maybe they come to inform one another in interesting ways. Maybe they start a dialogue that hopefully will allow everybody to be speaking a common language at some point in our story. So we're, we're going to take a drastic turn is what you're telling me. I think we are. Uh, and in our next episode, we're going to talk about maybe the origins of tactics blogging or proto tactics blogging in the same way that the think tank was sort of proto analytics blogging. We're going to talk about what is tactics blogging? How is it different from all the other kinds of tactics writing that have happened in the past? And uh, what's what's going to change about the way that we look at the game? Very cool. I'm excited. I am too. Uh, this has been Postscript. I'm John Muller. This is Total Football. I'm John Muller. This was Total Football. <laughs> and, uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Fuck. Well, I'm going to have to edit again, but uh, yeah. it'll be good. Goodbye.